Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. So to help each of us be at our best, Athletic Greens simplifies the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. It's tasty. It's lemony. It is tangy a little bit. So to make this easy, folks, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Are you looking to take control of your health? Well, one way to do that is to check GoodRx and finally stop overpaying for your prescription meds. You see, prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as a hundred bucks. You know that. So we're in the entertainment industry. We've got good healthcare, Reza. But these prices vary like crazy on the simplest medications. So for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash milkshake. That's good rx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2021, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% on retail prescription prices. That's pretty good. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am, of course, Rain Wilson. And I am, of course, Reza Aslan. And hey, you know what I've always noticed about you, Reza? That I am like... When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Persian Jake Gyllenhaal? Mm, maybe more of a Maggie. <laughs> I will totally take that. A- any I of mean, the she's, Gyllenhaals. She's fantastic. She's more talented, frankly. But uh, no, it's something else, really. Uh, you know, obviously, you're one of my, my good, good friends. And sometimes when we do these podcasts, it's, it's really almost like you're the other half of my brain. Oh, tell me more. Okay. Yeah, you are. You, you know, you say the things that I'm thinking. We finish each other's sentences. It's like, it's like we share the same brain. Share the same brain? Yeah, we should... Uh, how did you know I was going to say that? Weird. That was weird. You know what? Now that you mentioned it, actually, I think I know what you're talking about. I, I sort of feel it too. There are these weird times where I feel like I don't know where my mind stops and yours begins. Okay, actually, this is quite a fascinating topic because right? it's becoming more and more apparent throughout, you know, science and, you know, all the sort of cognitive developments that are taking place all around us that this whole process of thinking isn't necessarily confined to the skull. Maybe the mind is actually a, a kind of massive network that extends throughout the body, that extends beyond the body, that kind of touches upon space and other people. What I'm trying to say, Rain, is Maybe our brains, our minds, are actually touching each other. That's gross. <laughs> but deep. So what you're saying is that 
one's mind is bigger than just one's head. Exactly, oh my, my God, Reza. You know what that means? What does it mean? We're brain besties for life. Brain besties for life. And to help us have a further conversation about being brain besties, we have the foremost expert on the topic. Her name is Annie Murphy Paul. Her new book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, beautifully elucidates the topic. Yeah. Annie is a former senior editor at Psychology Today, so she clearly knows what she's talking about. Yep. She's got a ton of awards. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, New York Times Book Review, Slate, Discover, Health, Oh, The Oprah Magazine. She's also the author of Origins, How the Nine Months Before Birth Shaped the Rest of Our Lives. And this is actually one of her bigger books, The Cult of Personality, How Personality Tests Are Leading Us to Miseducate Our Children, Mismanage Our Companies, and Misunderstand Ourselves. How about that? Subtitle there, Rain. That's, that's a, a long subtitle. That's a long, beautiful, alliterative subtitle. <laughs> Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm really glad to be here. The Extended Mind. Look, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm showcasing this beautiful book and its gorgeous cover. Really? I like this cover. It is yeah. like a rainbow threw up on the cover <laughs> of your book. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's rainbow barf. That's exactly what it looks like. You're right. People keep asking me if the book is about drugs and drug experience, which I, I think I think the graphic on the cover has something to do with that. It looks a little psychedelic. <laughs> it's a the little ayahuasca, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, the, the book is actually about something kind of, uh, you know, druggy, which is about this notion about, you know, where does the mind actually reside? And maybe the brain isn't this magical organ that it's been kind of set up to be in our sort of popular imagination. So Yes. And so yeah. that is a little trippy. Yeah. A little bit trippy. Where, I, I can see where people are coming from. Yeah. yeah. So to get us started, what are mm. some of the dominant myths about the mind? And what and why do we need to understand how we think? Yeah, I think that the the main myth about the brain that this book is seeking to address and to counter is that the brain is this all powerful, all purpose thinking machine, um, and that we can use it to tackle all of the most complicated and difficult questions and in, and in, in problems in modern life. It doesn't need any help. It's this you know, uh, extraordinary, amazing organ that is um, the most complicated object in the universe. You know, these are all the things we hear from popular science accounts of, of the brain. Yeah. So what this book sets out to argue is that the brain is, it's, an, it's a quirky, idiosyncratic, very limited biological organ that evolved to do jobs that are very different from what we ask it to do today. And so it actually needs all the help it can get in terms of what I call in the book, extra neural resources, meaning outside the brain resources, which could be our technologies and tools. It could be our bodies. It could be physical space. It could be the minds of other people. All of these things can be considered part of the thinking process. And in fact, should be intentionally drawn into the thinking process if we want to think well. See, this is exactly the the reason that we wanted you on this program. Because I, I think this is so fascinating because you're right. We especially, you know, in the modern world have been raised to think of the brain as like this machine, this mm -hmm. supercomputer, right? You said mm -hmm. it perfectly. It's the most complex system in the universe, right? The most complicated, most sophisticated computer that we have has nothing on the brain. And right. what, are we, what are we always told? Like we, we use 10% of our brain. So right. we don't even understand it. It's a mystery. Right, That's, right. That's the elevated status that the brain has. And you're basically like, well, no, I mean, it's kind of, it's like basically an organ, right? It's like, it's like your right. gallbladder. It's a little bit more complicated than your gallbladder. Yeah. And don't our brains fail us all the time? You know, that's the paradox that comes at me when I see these popular science depictions of the brain. Like it, you end up thinking, did I just get a bum one? Did is mine a dud? You know, because I forget things all the time. I, I get confused all the time. Where's that amazing, extraordinary organ? Well, actually, that's just a reflection of, of the universal limits of the brain. And that's why we need to, um, to rely on these outside the brain resources. 
You use a lot of metaphors in the book, mm. and a central mm-hmm. metaphor that you challenge is the one we're talking about right now. What is the main problem with the brain as computer metaphor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a a analogy that arose in in the middle of the last century during the cognitive revolution, and it really, I mean, once you start noticing it, it permeates our understanding of the brain, even just our everyday. Uh, let the everyday language we use to talk about the brain. We talk about bandwidth. We talk about mental, you know, processing speed, and um, we really do think of our brains as a computer. And that's a really misleading metaphor and, and limiting, constraining metaphor for so many reasons. I mean, for one thing, brain uh, computers don't have bodies, and we are very much embodied creatures. And the body is an integral part of our thinking processes. A computer works exactly the same no matter where it's located, whereas the human brain is exquisitely sensitive to context, to where it's doing its thinking. And brains, I mean, sorry, computers don't have friends. You know, they don't have colleagues. They they don't, um, they network with other computers, but they're not affected by um, others of their kind, the way humans are so profoundly affected by other people. And um, so in all these ways, the com- the brain is computer metaphor just really, it undersells us humans. Um, it, it, it kind of um, encourages, it encourages us to cut ourselves off from what are actually the wellsprings of our human intelligence, which is the fact that we are embodied creatures who are embedded in physical spaces and involved, engaged in these social networks. That, that's where a lot of our mm-hmm specifically human intelligence comes from. So when we think of ourselves as computers, we really are selling ourselves short. First of all, uh, I, I just like, I feel so sad thinking about all those lonely computers with no friends. <laughs> no, we don't have friends. Aww. Just like, yeah. you know. Yeah. I would say that there's even a, a sort of a bigger uh, metaphor that is often used for the brain. Uh, yeah, we've all heard the brain is the computer thing. That's very much like a, a result of the cognitive uh, revolution. But the other kind of result of that is this notion that the brain is everything, that it's the mm. seat mm. of everything, right? And it's that all experiences, your very sense of self, who you are, what we would call consciousness, the you know, soul, mind, mm-hmm. whatever, um, everything that you experience in the world, all of it is just the result of chemical reactions in mm-hmm. the brain. That in a, in mm-hmm. a sense, you don't even really need the body anymore. Right. Like you, all right. those sort of futuristic science science fiction movies where we're right. all just like brains in jars. Like because that's really yeah. all we are, right? Yeah, nothing. Yes. We're told we're told that the reason we can see is not because of our eyes, but because our brains. The reason that we can taste something is not because of our tongue, but because of our brains. So like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the brain is who we are. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, all of that kind of starts crumbling when you start thinking about this, the way that you're talking about the brain, which is like the brain in dialogue and conversation with the body, that it actually can't just be uh, an organ inside of a, you know, a a vat of fluid uh, just floating around without us. Right, like the matrix, right? We're not not living in the matrix as far as we know. As far as we know, yeah. Oh, contraire. I'm sorry. But, you know, that's another episode. So we'll get to that later. Fair enough. But all of that is wrong, which I, th- I think is mm-hmm. is really fascinating because that's definitely how I think. In fact, <laughs> the, the very topic of this of this episode, you know, is the is I think therefore I am. Uh, and it goes all the way back to, you know, the, the fundamental uh, uh question posed by Descartes, right? This notion of cogito uh, ergo sum. What does it mean to be. And the way we know we are is because our brains are thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what what we've been taught. At, I feel like it's what I was taught at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's a, pardon the pun, but mind-expanding thing to suddenly think that, no, the brain is just kind of one element and maybe not even the, the most dominant element, but probably... Mm. Um, in the process of thinking and therefore consciousness and therefore knowledge of the world and knowledge of the self and all of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I make the argument, I mean, speaking of uh, I think therefore I am, I, I make the argument in a chapter in the book about interoception, this this capacity we have to sense 
all these signals and cues arising from within our body that uh, it's actually the continuous sense of um, this internal world in the body. Um, The fact that we, you know, we can feel our lungs expanding. We can feel, some of us can feel our hearts beating. Some of us are not so good at that, but we, um, we inhabit this body in a continual, a continuous and, and such an intimate way throughout our lives. And that really is what gives us the sense that I am this person and no other. I'm the same person I was two weeks ago or 20 years ago. Um, and to locate that sense of self in the brain is actually um, perhaps misguided as common as it is, as you've been mm-hmm. saying. Folks, is your company or business having a tough time hiring the people you need? I mean, we keep hearing this all the time. Like you watch the news, everybody's having difficulty hiring and, you know, it's it's difficult because right now we're at this place where there are something like 46% more jobs being posted than before the pandemic. And believe it or not, there are 44% fewer candidates applying to each one of those jobs. So in that kind of environment, you need to find the right candidates and you need to hire them fast. And that's where Workable comes in. Workable accelerates every step of your hiring process from find to hire. It helps you cast the widest net possible by posting your jobs to all of the top job boards, more than 200 total, with just a single click. It helps you evaluate and hire quickly with modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures. And Workable will help you automate repetitive tasks like scheduling interviews so you can spend your time, you know, making hires. So whether you're hiring for your coffee shop or your engineering team, Workable is exactly what you need to hire the right people fast. It's a crazy time. And so many indicators show that the economy is better than it's ever been. Um, Now we've got inflation. However, we've got the oil and gas crisis happening. There's so much uncertainty out there. You need all the help you can get in your hiring. Help search over 200 job boards with Workable. Start hiring today with a risk-free 15-day trial. If you hire during the trial, which many, many do, it won't cost a thing. Just go to workable.com to start hiring. Workable is hiring made easy. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+. plus. You say in your book, um, instead of thinking of the brain as a workhorse we keep flogging to get the job done, think of the brain Mm -hmm. as an orchestra conductor. The -hmm. brain is central to thinking, but it's not doing all the work on its own. This is kind of the thesis of the extended mind. You Mm -hmm. know, and it reminds Mm -hmm. us, uh, Reza and I were talking earlier about the humble octopus The Mm -hmm. philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith wrote, the octopus lives outside the usual body-brain divide. And the nervous system as a whole is a more relevant object than the brain. It's not Mm -hmm. clear where the brain begins and ends and when the nervous system runs through the body. The octopus is suffused with nervousness. The body is not a separate thing that is controlled by the brain or by the nervous system. So, Are we like an octopus or what can we (laughs) learn from an octopus? Oh, gosh. I just, over the break, finally saw my octopus teacher, which maybe you guys, yeah, it was so, Mm, so beautiful. beautiful. Um, I do think we are more like, uh, I think we're not supposed to say octopi, right? No, believe it or not, Uh, it's octopuses, which I (laughs) thought it was octopodi. Oh, that's, yeah. Or octopodi. Octopodi. Yeah, we're we're more like those, those eight, 
they have eight arms, right? Eight armed creatures. <laughs> yeah. Then we um, tentacles. Then, yeah, I mean, and that's part of the, that whole Cartesian duality of, of of mind being separate from from body. I think is was in part an effort to separate us and and distinguish us from animals, actually. And and what I want to say in this book is that we're more like animals, like non human animals, than we are like machines. And yet. Um, we so persistently analogize ourselves to machines. I think because with a computer, we imagine an idealized version of ourselves with all the messy, embarrassing, inconvenient parts of, of being a human sort of engineered out. But when we do that, when we engineer out these, as I say, these wellsprings of human intelligence, we actually end up with a different kind of intelligence and I would say an inferior kind of intelligence. So it's really mm. embracing our animal nature, our embodied nature that I think is the path to really, to true intelligence. And are you talking about our gut instinct? Because people talk about like, oh, my gut says this. And I know that scientists are talking about the gut as like a second brain. Um, yes. do, do you feel like that, yes. you know, I feel it in my gut and that the gut really helps works alongside the brain? What have you learned about that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't get into the um, the gut, the, li the literal gut as a kind of um, itself, uh, an organ that can, that contributes to cognition. Although I know there is, there is research um, looking into that. I'm, I'm talking more about, you know, gut instinct is, is a colloquial phrase that reflects our sense that, uh, and it's an accurate sense that, um, the body is intimately involved in, in our thinking processes. And, mm -hmm. and as I mentioned, there's this process called interoception, which um, is one of the ways in which the body alerts us to all the things we know on a non-conscious level, but that, you know, th there's far too much information that we encounter uh, every day in order to, uh, for us to pr consciously process and store and remember all of that. But we do store and process and store that on a non-conscious level. So then the question is, how do we get access to that information that we, that we do possess? And the answer is that the, it's the body that alerts us to, to regularities um, that we're seeing in, in, um, in our environment, to patterns that we've encountered before. It's the body with those, you know, little twinges and feelings of tension or um, excitement or fear that are sort of tapping us on the shoulder or tugging us on the sleeve and saying, pay attention. You've seen this before. You know, you, you have the body is preparing us to take on that challenge, but all of that happens below awareness. And so we don't count it as thinking, but it's actually um, really a, a very consequential part of thinking. We, we identify ourselves with our conscious minds, but so much of mental activity happens below consciousness. Uh, this is such a fascinating conversation. Um, but, if I were to be perfectly honest, I'm less interested in the science than I am in the metaphysics of it. Mm -hmm. Let's get metaphysical, as we okay. like to say. <laughs> the question for me has much more to do with the mind than the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, mm -hmm. we think of these two things as separate. And I think it's, you know, the, your book is called The Extended Mind mm -hmm. um, because it's deliberately trying to sort of take the idea of what the mind is outside of the brain. Mm -hmm. I feel like so much of contemporary science, which is very brain focused, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is centered on this idea that whatever the mind is, that it's actually located in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. That there isn't really a difference between the two, but that certainly right. isn't what you're writing mm -hmm. about here. So I guess the first, the first part of this question, I got like, we've got like seven steps to this question here, but the first part <laughs> of it is if the mind isn't actually located in the brain, then where does it reside? Is it mm -hmm. is it the penis? Is it the penis? Just let us know, <laughs> Annie. Is it? Why would you go? Why do you have to go there? <laughs> well, yeah. I just feel like it might be. What if you don't have one then? I mean, ah, you know, see, deep. I, of course, as a yeah, man, never thought yeah, about I, that. I, I, yeah, perhaps I should pass on that question. This is a profound mm. and elemental question, right? Because for a lot of people, the mind and the soul are synonymous, right? That sometimes we, we talk about the mind as the seat of consciousness, the 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 seat of our essence. Mm. Well, that's how we talk about the soul, right? Spiritual people mm. talk about the soul mm. very much in the same way. Mm. And this mm. idea that the mind is just a thing that exists in the brain mm -hmm. is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes used to pull the rug out 
from underneath, uh, you know, more kind of spiritual, metaphysically minded people who mm. talk about the mind and the seed of essence. And people mm. are like, you're stupid. The mind is the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. this new way of thinking about what the mind is, and of course, all the implications that come from the idea of what the mind could be, what does it say about us as human beings to, mm. to divorce mm. mind from brain the way that you do in this mm. book? Hmm. Or to say that mind is bigger than brain. Yeah, I should say, and I maybe should have yeah. said this. Should have said this earlier that the extended mind is an idea that I borrowed. I did not make up this idea. Yes. It's borrowed from two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, and their 1998 but, but article. But we, we couldn't get them, Annie. So yeah, <laughs> they weren't. They were busy tonight. <laughs> I know. Um, so I'm here in, in their stead. Um, they, their article introducing this idea of the extended mind, they have a beautiful first sentence in that article, which said, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And they acknowledge that the conventional answer to that is that the mind and the brain are, are identical, that the mind stops at the skull. And their argument was that, no, actually the mind, our thinking processes extend out beyond the skull into the rest of our bodies into physical space, into our, our tools and technologies, into the minds of other people. And Clark and Chalmers have their own standards for when uh, a tool, for example, a notebook or a smartphone can be counted as an extension of the brain. You know, they think it needs mm. to be reliably coupled with, um, with, with our thinking process in such a way that the, that loop is really, um, very consistent and reliable and, and, um, uh, continuous. And I, you know, I, those to me are questions for philosophers. I'm more interested in, um, almost operationalizing this, this idea. I felt like it was too good of an idea, too generative of an idea to leave to the philosophers. I wanted to know, okay, so if the, if the mind extends beyond the skull, what does that mean for our daily activities of thinking and learning and creating? And it turns out there are, there are these bodies of research, uh, that have been, developing, emerging for the last 20 or 30 years, like embodied cognition, the idea that we think with our bodies, situated cognition, the idea that where we are affects how we think, and socially distributed cognition, the idea that um, thinking doesn't only happen in individual heads. And of course, the idea that mind equals brain is a very individualistic idea, you know, mm-hmm. that, that it all it's all this lump of, of stuff inside your head that it determines how well you think. And so once we, you know, Reza, you asked like, what is it, what are the implications for how we understand ourselves as, as human beings? Um, if we were to take the extended, the thesis of the extended mind seriously and, you know, Clark and Chalmers said in that original articles, it would lead us to see ourselves more truly as creatures of the world. We're really constituted by the world, by our relationships, by our right. physical environment. And so to me, that's right. a pretty profound rethinking of, of what a human being is. So the, the answer to that question, where does the mind end? Fundamentally, if, if it's about context and the idea that the mind takes elements from, you know, uh, around us, um, you know, that it, it's all about, you know, uh, relationship, to the world, well, then the answer is the it it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Where does the mind end? It doesn't. <laughs> no, potentially, but, no. Right. I know this isn't necessarily your field of study, but isn't there like Reza's kind of hinting at kind of some spiritual implications? Because you know, I practice mm-hmm. meditation and I meditate every mm-hmm. day, and I read a lot of like Vedic kind of and Buddhist thought, which kind of tells us in a you know purely spiritual sense that. The we're in an illusion that we're separate. The illusion of separateness yes. that we're we yes. are interconnected, um, mm-hmm. just as nature is interconnected. You use the orchestra uh, metaphor a lot throughout the book. That there is that you know where I stop and where you begin. It's it's mm-hmm. all it's all blurry. Light mm-hmm. consciousness, and I know this is sounding very airy fairy right now. No, but, it's good stuff. But when I when I go there, my life is richer. Mm-hmm. My life is mm-hmm. happier and I'm more satisfied. And then when I am thinking of myself as, you know, I am Paul Simon, I am a rock, I'm an island, I am a brain <laughs> in, a, in a brain case. So mm-hmm. there, are, there are tangible 
implications as well as metaphysical implications. Because meditation and thinking of myself as all one, all connected, uh, makes my life better. How has this research, how has this work around the extended mind improved your life in specific ways? Well, I, it's so interesting that you say that, Rain, because um, a number of people have said to me, I've noted that the book has a kind of Buddhist flavor, which is interesting, mm. was striking to me because there's nothing about Buddhism in the book, but I am myself very interested in Buddhism. I meditate, I read a lot about Buddhism, and and I couldn't help but see, you know, it's not that the the work on my work on the extended mind led me to Buddhism, but clearly they have some common themes that were that drew me to both of them. I've said that writers really, they often write what they need to learn. And despite my Buddhist leanings, or maybe that's all related in some way, um, I would I would say I'm a very, I started this project as a very brain-bound person. Brain-bound is a word, another mm. word that I borrowed from yeah, Andy Clark. I love I'm that. Just, I, lo- I, I love that. I, the, the concept of brain-bound thinking, which you talk about in the book a lot, which I right. love. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I'm a freelance writer. I work alone and, you know, um, I mostly don't move (laughs) during the day. I'm doing all the things that I say not to do in the book when I talk about bringing movement and gesture and social interaction and, you know, changing your environment and all that. I I didn't, you know, I, I was not someone who did any of that. And so I think in some ways the journey of writing this book really, um, I really had to convince myself first and foremost that there was something to this idea that, everything doesn't happen inside the head and ideally should not happen inside the head, that we think more efficiently and more effectively when we externalize our cognition, when we um, offload as much of it as possible. But it, it can be a, a frightening idea to, to people. I've noticed that people um, push back against that idea sometimes because they like the idea that they own their intelligence, they own their their own accomplishments, that they're not um, attributable to anyone or anything outside themselves. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's a bit of a a countercultural kind of idea. I think it goes against the grain. Yeah. It's a, it's anti-individualistic, um, you know, this idea that, um, you know, we have to sort of think beyond our brain bound existence that, uh, whatever, you know, if you do really think of the mind as the sort of seat of your essence, the, the, the core of your consciousness, which is after all how we understand who we are and mm-hmm. our role in the world. If you understand the mind as uh, necessarily in communication with not just your body, but with all the external stimuli. And so therefore, you know, we are actively engaged with one another and with nature and mm-hmm. that that's that is literally how we think. It's how you know mm-hmm. our our mind functions. Yeah, those can be scary ideas, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like you're not in control of yourself anymore. Right, you're not right. Control of the eye. So it, it goes going back to Descartes, right? What does it mean to be? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. His idea was so individualistic and and so brain bound. Right. Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. I know I am? Because I am thinking. But if in, in thinking, here. <laughs> yeah. But if yeah. thinking isn't a thing that happens in inside your skull, if thinking is a thing that happens, you know, w- the, in this dialectic between, uh, you know, your brain and your body, and your body and everybody else's body, mm-hmm. then there's this sort of collectiveness to mm-hmm. the experience of being, which yeah. on the one hand is beautiful, the way that Rain was talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that the whole point of meditation is to sort of go beyond yourself and to understand the oneness of all being. But it's also weird and foreign and, you know, mm-hmm. scary a little bit and yeah. doesn't sound like something Jesus would say, which right away, <laughs> you know, makes me somewhat skeptical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear it. Well, let that. me let me let me quote another guru, Rain. You may appreciate this. Um, Ram Das used to say, You're not who you think you are. And I think that's the challenge posed mm. by the extended mind. You're not who you think you are. You're not this individual bound, brain-bound, um discrete creature cut off from everything. The boundary between you and the world is actually quite blurry and, and hard to hard to determine. And I think it takes time to become comfortable with that idea. Well, you know, along those lines, uh, you know, this whole concept, I think, therefore I am, but really our consciousness lies in 
oh, I witness myself thinking, therefore I am. There's, a, mm. there's another level above thought, which is noticing yourself having mm. a thought. Mm. Um, mm. And mm -hmm. so there, and there's greater and greater levels of consciousness that can be ascribed. Yeah, or even that thoughts think themselves and there's no self or no I there doing the thinking. You talk about a lot of different ways that the mind works, ways that we think, ponder, process, ideate, you know, neuroarchitecture, you know, how our design around us affects our thinking, you know, moving versus sitting down that we, we learn by being in our bodies. Weren't you talking about that with your kids, Reza? Well, mm. you know, we're back at distance learning here and, mm. uh, and, you know, my poor kids are sitting, you know, at their desk, staring at a screen and, you know, they're, they're fidgeting and they're getting up and I'm constantly yelling at them to sit back down and, and, and <laughs> quote unquote, think. think, and now I'm right. reading your book your and head. it's like, no, that's not a good idea. You should not yeah. be sitting when you think. But, but, <laughs> so. but going off of that too, you also talk about social thinking and consultation, mm -hmm. like thinking in groups, as opposed to kind of thinking in a brain bound isolation, you say our brains evolved to think with people, to teach them, to argue with them, exchange stories. Human thought is sensitive to context. And one of the most powerful contexts is the presence of other people. We mm -hmm. often think differently and better than when we think non-socially. Can you talk about mm -hmm. social thinking? Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll talk about that in the context of just what Reza was saying, that I think the pandemic has actually been this vast natural experiment that has shown us the limitations of brain-bound thinking. You know, for two years, we've been brains in front of screens. And I think we've felt the the difference, yeah. you know. And the, oh, the, yeah. We're punching people on airplanes, right and left. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I you mean, don't have any nuts. <laughs> <laughs> we've been cut off from many of the mental extensions that in normal times really help us to think, like um, stimulating new places and um, in-person interaction with other people. And the freedom to move our bodies around instead of just sitting in front of our screens and trying to get stuff done. Um, so that, and that social piece reign, I think is really key. That really gets, it really pushes against this uh, assumption of individualism that's built into our culture. And um, I, I am, I'm struck again and again by how much we seem to, just as we separate the mind from the body, uh, traditionally, we, we tend to separate intellectual life, mental life from social life, as if they're different and separate and maybe even opposed to each other. You know, we, we work all day and then we go for a happy hour after work, or we expect kids to sit still in the classroom, but then you can, you can talk at lunch or recess or something. But human beings, uh, we are such fundamentally and powerfully social creatures and we're social creatures all the time. That doesn't get turned off when we're in the workplace or in the classroom. So then the challenge becomes how do we harness these incredibly powerful social brains that we have in the service of learning and working instead of trying to separate the two and, and shut one off. And it's so hard yeah. for people to ask for help and for mm -hmm. people to consult and use kind of the greater wisdom of, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've taken in the last, you know, decade or so to really rely on my friends and, and groups mm. to you know, help me out of pickles and, and help guide me on certain paths and seek direction. And it's so hard, especially for males. That's another, mm -hmm. I think females are, are naturally a little bit more kind of socially connected. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a, another conversation. I mean, but Ray, I do think, Rain is my only friend. Oh, and I'm happy to, to guide you and direct you, Reza, which is to quit this podcast. Um, <laughs> once and for all. But, you know, it's hard for men to reach out and say, hey, what should I do? How can, you know, here's my issues. Here's my my mode of thinking. And I'm going around and around and in this mode mm -hmm. of thinking in, in an OCD way, help me out yes. of it, help guide me. But we, you, we really, through that process of social interaction and consultation, guidance, wisdom, which we used to have as people, we used to be mm. in tribes. That's mm -hmm. what we did mm. around with mm. the chiefs and the shamans around the fire. We would seek, seek guidance and, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and make decisions communally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about creating those, co these cognitive loops that seem to improve human thinking in a way that has no analog with computers. I'm going to quote Andy Clark again. He says, humans are intrinsically loopy creatures. There's something about the nature of our own biological intelligence that um, is enhanced by 
looping thoughts out of our heads and through our bodies, you know, through our physical spaces, through the minds of other people. And again and again, you know, and, and if, as long as we keep our thoughts inside our own heads, they can't get enhanced and improved that way. So we can learn to, um, to create those cognitive loops, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not what our culture prescribes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now that we have firmly established that Descartes was some French bastard. Chump. Who, what yeah, chump. Penis. should stop yeah. reading in college. Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentally, and I know this is not what your book is really about. Your book is, you know, deeply about the science and the implications of the science. But... On a, on a sort of more metaphysical and spiritual level, fundamentally, at the end of the day, who are we mm-hmm. if we are not our brains? You know? Yeah. Who, who are we then? Yeah. Well, this, this perspective, if we're going to take it seriously, puts such enormous uh, emphasis on the quality of our environments, right? I mean, literally the raw, these are the raw materials with which we're constructing our thought. And none of that really matters if it's all due to this lump of stuff in our heads. But once we start thinking of, you know, you, we were talking earlier about metaphors and another metaphor that I, I, I came up with and I really like, and so I'm going to mention it here is that our brains are like magpies, those birds that collect shiny bits of and pieces from their environment and weave them into their nests. And that's really what our thinking process is like more than this workhorse, you know, or this, or this muscle. That's another very common metaphor in our culture that the brain is like a muscle. Uh, the, the brain I think is really more like, um, it, it, the brain does its thinking by assembling raw materials from our, our physical sensations, our physical environment, our relationships with other people, and then weaving them into our thought process. So if that's the case, then what's all around us and in us, in our bodies and how well we pay attention to that and make use of that um, really matters. And so it's, it's a very, it's a deeply ecological kind of perspective on human nature. So Annie Murphy, Paul, one thing we like to do and how we wrap up our conversations is a lightning round. We're going to, we're going to throw out some of life's greatest and most challenging questions to you. And in the blink of an eye, you're going to respond Uh, And we would love to hear you respond, not from your brain, but from your octopus gut. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to hit you with some big ones. Ready? So what is something that few people know about you? Not that many people know that I am a Buddhist. That's been a kind Mm. of, I just haven't really. You're a closet Buddhist. You're coming out of the closet. Congratulations. Yes, I am. Or is there a closet? Mm. (laughs) Be one with the closet. Uh, (laughs) Is it all one big room? (laughs) <laughs> what skill do you wish you had? Oh, gosh. I'm not really good at logistical things and keeping on top of things. I just like to think about big ideas. So it would be nice if I were a little more um, attuned to the practicalities of daily life. If you could interview any person, living or dead, who would it be? I, you know, as much as uh, psychoanalysis has been vilified and attacked, I still think it it. it it contains so many insights about human nature. I would love to interview Freud. Freud, wow! Mm-hmm. That's, what was yeah, the, what's the first question you would ask him? <laughs> uh, did you ever figure out what women wanted? <laughs> <laughs> famously, famously wrong about literally everything. Um, what happens to us after we die, Annie? Uh, we we 
go back to the earth and become part of the soil <laughs> and, and, and hopefully, you know, allow more things to grow. Uh, I think that's what I believe. That's it. Consciousness. It just turns out like a light bulb. I think I, I think I'm not, the Buddhist I'm not in sure. you is debating the scientist. I'm not, in you I'm, right not, now. I'm not sure, but I think there's a kind of there's a way in which we we continue to be part of the fabric of of the earth of the universe, but just in a different form. And I don't mean reincarnation. I just mean um, we go you know from dust to dust. I think maybe that's my. I was raised a Catholic, so um, there's probably a little bit of that still hanging around. When do you feel most connected with the universe? I know I should say when I'm outside in nature, but I'm actually more of an indoors kind of person. <laughs> uh, I love, I, I love Don't conversation. I, so when you're binge love, watching? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, usually when Netflix uh, is on. I love, con- I love connecting with other people on a deep level and really, really good conversations. You know, like this one we're having right here. I know mm. that I, I really think that that's probably when I, certainly when I feel most alive and most authentic. Speaking of uh, conversations, delightful conversations, uh, if you could have coffee with 19-year-old Annie Murphy-Paul, what oh. would you tell her? Oh, gosh. I would say, interestingly, you know, I would say don't be so afraid of people because the, this this love of connection and this ease of being with people that I feel now that I'm 49, so this would be, this would be 30 years ago, um, uh, this would be the, the, the self that I'm talking to would be 30 years ago, um, I was quite shy and socially inhibited and afraid, actually rain afraid of asking for help. Mm. And I would have been, I guess, a freshman or sophomore in college. And I, I really felt like it, this was a very individual undertaking, you know, this, this academic um, achievement, path of achievement that I felt I was on. And I really wish I had um, been able to feel that I could really be myself with, with those I knew at the time, but that, that just took a really long time to develop. Final lightning round question. The one we ask everyone, um, what is your life's big question? Well, this is one I think about all the time. I would have said that my life's big question is what makes us the way we are. And a lot of my, the work that I did earlier in my career, earlier books and, and magazine articles were very much trying to get my arms around that question. I've recently become more interested in how do we change? I think maybe that's like a midlife question. It's mm. like, okay, I am who I am. I've become myself, but now I want to change into something else, you know? So I'm, in, I'm interested in those questions of identity in the sense of who are we as individuals and how did we get to be that way? I'm very interested in the nurture nature question and then the interplay of, um, of innate factors and environmental factors. So that would, that would be the big question. For me. Well, I believe we have an entire podcast episode on that. Uh, you should uh, subscribe oh, and, I, and like. I no, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> Can we out. change? Can we change our minds? Can we change uh, who we are? Who, who, who do you interview for that? Is it just, or is it the two of you talking? Adam Grant touched on that and like how we can change people's minds. That was, that was a fun conversation. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Annie Murphy-Paul, thank you so much for joining us. The book is called The Extended Mind. Fascinating. I mean, the science is interesting. Your writing is wonderful, but just the the questions that it brings up about what it means to be human, uh, I think, are just profound, uh, incredibly enlightening. Yes. Thank you so oh, much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This conversation has made me feel really connected to the universe. I, I, I really, <laughs> really. Aww. It has. It's been Good a pleasure. Bad. It really has. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Here's what I find absolutely fascinating about that conversation with Annie Murphy-Paul. And I love her name, and I feel like I need to say all three elements of her name Mm -hmm. all the time. This idea that, like, we are really nothing without our environment and our context, right? We, this is a kind of where we ended the conversation about this idea that like, you know, mind extends beyond the brain. It actually extends beyond the body that what we consider to be mind and then therefore the seat of consciousness is in constant dialogue with environment. That means that whatever we are, however we understand even the question, what am I, can't be answered in isolation. That we we are intimately connected to each other. We are indivisible from 
nature and the world and therefore the universe, which, by the way, is what, you know, the most basic laws of science tell us, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, all matter is the same. All matter is eternal. I'm made of stars. Uh, But to think that our consciousness— That's what Deepak Chopra says. That's what Deepak Chopra says? Yeah, we're stardust. He, he gets more money for saying it than he, I do. Yes, he does. He gets paid millions. But you know what I'm saying? Like, am I am I Deepak Chopraing you here? No. This is probably our, you and I, the thing, one of the things we share in total common is our favorite question is this hard question of consciousness. And yeah. this, the experience of consciousness, of feelings, thoughts, memories, sensations, also thoughts, pondering small thoughts, like where did I leave my car keys, but large thoughts, like what is the meaning of it all? Or how do I take in beauty? Like this consciousness, you know, certainly there's parts of it that are connected to what I would call a brain. And certainly there are parts of it that are the mind, but, you know, consciousness can be expanded. And I'm not talking about through drugs, although that I guess can help people, but there are non-drug ways to expand one's consciousness, but I love this idea of like, here we are where these, where these sweaty, farty, fleshy creatures, and we've got this big gray matter riding around in a skull, and we certainly have a mind, and we can, you know, articulate and pontificate, and we can, you know, circumnambulate and ponder, but our consciousness is is, is even greater than that. But I, I love the just yeah. the the mystery of it all is just fantastic. And yeah. it is simply not reducible to those are all an illusion caused by neural synapses in your brain firing away of that sensation right. of being alive. Yeah. You know, ancient peoples, Paleolithic peoples, believed that that, you know, we all share a single essence, like the tree, the rock, you know, the sky the wind and me, that it's all fundamentally the same. And it's so crazy how like, you know, 200,000 years later, we are just kind of slowly coming back to that very real reality, right? That Mm. what I am is Mm. indivisible Mm. from what you are. Well, you know, the ancient Egyptians would, uh, when they mummified people, there's no brains in mummies. They would throw out yeah. the brains. They had no idea what a brain did. They had a very apparently uh, deep knowledge of what all the organs were responsible for, like where thinking happened, which was in the gut, by the way, and feeling and anger and envy and, and whatnot. But brains, they were like, I don't know what the hell this thing is. Just this juicy, wet sponge that had to be removed forcibly through the nose. You know, and if, there's, if, if we needed any further proof, and this was something I was going to potentially bring up in the interview, but in my research, there's this incredible case. His name is Noah Wall, and mm. it's a little boy in England, and he was born with only 2% of his brain. And what? survival and thinking was thought to be impossible for this kid. He only 2% of his brain. Reza, he did not have a cerebral cortex, which is considered the seat of consciousness itself. And his brain grew, and he's functioning almost in the normal range, and he talks at age level. And uh, you can look him up. Just look up Noah Wall. It's absolutely incredible, and it counters everything science has been saying about the brain, the mind, and consciousness. As usual, when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, you might get to come on our show and ask us your life's big question. And today we have a fan special guest named Sam, and he's from Utah. Hi, Sam from Utah. Hello. What is your life's big question? The question I came up with, and it's kind of multifaceted, and and this is actually great for you because you're both fathers. I just had a baby three months ago. Ah, oh, my Allah. first one. Do you have yeah. a you have a womb? <laughs> yeah, brain. And um, uh, I just wanted to know, like, the big question is if in this scenario, giving advice as more experienced fathers mm-hmm. to someone who's just becoming a father, what do you think is the most important thing you could pass on? And, and part of that, um, just like from my perspective, I feel kind of overwhelmed by 
the fact that I could mess this kid up. Yeah. <laughs> and and I feel like the world is contentious and I want to be I want to be a good dad and I want to be able to and the thing I appreciate from both of you um and like Rain I've read uh Bassoon King um oh, so I, I being able to transfer my faith and my like my beliefs and my spirituality into my son is also important mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering so the question is like what would be the best piece of advice you could give a new father Oof. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good one. You know what? I'm going to swiftly pass you over to the guy with 17 children. <laughs> I, am a, I am a terrible father. I'm Not just true. the worst. Not I true. I have seen you with Walt. You're a great I, I father. Don't, I don't listen. I just lecture. Um, a lot of physical corporal punishment, physical discipline. <laughs> this is, um, folks, please don't call TMZ. None of this is true. All right. Well, Reza, what, what do you think? Fundamentally, all a kid wants is attention. All a child needs is for you to be staring straight at them and just giving them time and energy. Like all the developmental psychology that my wife forced me to read <laughs> all basically boils down to that. Give your child attention. It's as simple as that. That's all they need. It's all they want. It's how they develop their brains. It's how they understand empathy and, and you know, all the things that you want from them, right? But I will say one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently because Rain and I have been talking online, offline about consciousness. What is consciousness? You know, how does it function? And and I don't know, Rain, if you agree with me on this, but like the the one thing that's the sort of the weirdest experience about having children is that for the first time, it changes your experience of consciousness. All right, let me, let me explain what I mean by this. Like, if you, if you think of consciousness at its most basic level as uh, awareness of the self, okay, that's a lot of other things, but let's just like strip it down to its most basic level. I am aware of myself and my existence. It's kind of like a bubble that I live inside of. Having kids, it, it, it does this weird thing where it like expands the bubble. The bubble gets like bigger and other people fit into it. You know, like your wife, no matter how close you are, your wife is a different being and it's separate from you. So she's never in that bubble. But suddenly like this child, this like piece of you, enters that bubble. And like your consciousness, at least for the first couple of years, I think, of, of, of parenthood, suddenly expands and there's this other person in it. Like you see the world through their eyes and their experiences. Like it expands your knowledge of self. Your self-awareness becomes bigger. And it's the craziest thing. It's, it's spiritual. It's psychological, it's metaphysical, it's all of those things. But it's there's a lot of ways to talk about what changes in you when you have a child. You know, you're more this, you're less that, whatever. But like at a existential level, it's the first time that your consciousness makes room for another entity. You know, am I just making, am I making sense at all, Rain? Does that make sense? I don't, I don't understand what the hell you're talking about, Reza. <laughs> but I will say this. I, will I say barely that having, I just want to say I barely understand what I'm talking about. Have, having a child uh, is a paradigm shift. It really shifts what it's like to be in the world. You know, before you have children, it's just like, you know, where am I going to eat? When am I going to poop? What movie am I going to watch tonight? That's kind of your life. And then you have children. All of a sudden, you have a little life. Um, that you're responsible for. But speaking of consciousness, an interesting thing about consciousness, and we don't really talk about this, is how it evolves. Because mm -hmm. does a baby have consciousness? Sure, of course it does. You know, it sees light and color and hears sound, has sensation. Does a three-year-old have it? Well, yeah, a little bit more. Does a seven-year-old have it? Yeah, they're able to, you know, add and subtract and they're able to use the alphabet and remember things and have tasks and errands. Does a 12-year-old... And now, like, my son is 17, and, like, I'll start to say, Walter, remember, and he'll, like, finish my sentence and tell a joke and be three steps ahead of me. And it's like, all of a sudden, I'm realizing, like, whoa, his consciousness is at an adult 
level now. And that, and that is a miraculous thing is that you're helping build someone's consciousness. You're, you're a part of that evolution. It's going to evolve with or without you, mm -hmm. but you're aiding the development of that child's consciousness. That's pretty cool. But here's another thing I want to throw into the mix, Sam. I think I've brought this up before on the show at some point in time, but I just love it. In the Baha'i faith, my religious tradition, uh, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith said in a, in a longer uh, kind of tablet, he said, let your children become accustomed to hardship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting challenge because we want to take away all the pain. We yeah. want to take away all the difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly that doesn't mean like allow your children to feel unnecessary pain and, and difficulty, but the you're going to best prepare them for life by have them under having them understand that there's going to be disappointment. There's going to be skinned mm -hmm. knees. There's going to be uh, difficulties. There's going to be rejection. There's going to be some kind of like bullying happening. Um, not a, you know, crazy bullying, but there's, people are going to be mean sometimes and people are going to be unpredictable and you're not going to control. So letting your children become accustomed to the difficulties of the world is actually doing them a tremendous favor. And I do think that contemporary parenting tries to erase all of that. Yeah. And then you have these kids in college and in their first jobs. No resilience. That, yeah, no resilience. Exactly. No grit, no determination. Um, and uh, they just get knocked down by some very simple obstacles. I actually see that. I teach um, at a private school mm -hmm. right now, a K through 12 school. And I see that a lot with uh, the current youth, mm -hmm. that there's, there's a lot of issues and things that I didn't have to deal with. But there's a lot of things that even, and I'm, you know, one, well, you've got even more experience than I do. But I just think I was a lot tougher in school for a lot of things that for them, it's just impossible. And so, yeah. and, but I also feel like, and, and I haven't studied parenting books, but I do feel the need to like soothe him every time he cries. And so try to figure out that balance. I think yeah. it's going to be tricky for me. I'll give you one, one uh, like basic parenting advice, like book parenting advice, which is, which has been very, very helpful. It would behoove you to treat your child until at least he's 17 or 18 as an alien from another planet. So like, <laughs> don't expect like rational responses. You know, don't, don't kill yourself thinking to yourself, that makes no sense. Why would you say that? Why would you do that? That makes no sense at all. It, because it's not an attitude problem. They literally don't have fully developed brains, mm. literally. Mm. Like their brains don't work like yours. So yeah. when, when they do things that are absolutely baffling, in your mind, which is a fully developed brain, you're like, that is illogical. I can't understand why anyone would do that. Well, that's because you're talking to an alien from another planet. And if you just think of them that way, it'll help you, trust me. Like, but like I said, like my son is 17. It's, it's just fantastically adult. And then this morning on his way out the door to drive to school, he's like, oh, by the way, there's a big uh, exclamation point and a yellow triangle and the check engine lights on in my car. And it's five minutes until he's supposed to leave for school. It's like, why did you make that decision to tell me right then? That's not bad behavior. That's not, that's not poor behavior. That's just... yeah." a malfunctioning brain. Yeah. And you, you just, the, the, the quicker you understand that, I trust me, it'll save you so many headaches. So many headaches. Sam, we thank you for calling in for this fantastic uh, question. It's been so nice having you on the show. I appreciate it. Good luck, Sam. Folks, do you want to be like Sam? Come and ask us your life's big question, parenting advice. Obviously, we got a lot of that. All you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review the show, ask us your life big question, and we might have you on to ask it of us personally. It's very easy. You can also send us your life's big question. You can find us on social at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at Metamilk Podcast and on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake and let us know your life's big question. Who knows? We just might explore them on a future episode. 
Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Eris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. Do octopuses have penises? <laughs> and if so, what would they be called? Yeah. Anyway. Octopenis? Yeah, right. Octopenis? <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.